right, as we get started today, can I please see the hands of those of you who are on Instagram? All right, that is a lot of you, but come on, we're about halfway through the service. Would you please just shut it down? <laughs> All right, well, even if you're not on, actually on it right now, that's a lot of you who are on that app, and I thought it'd be, it'd be kind of interesting to know which one of you has the most followers. We're not going to do that exercise, but it might be interesting. I wonder, does anybody want to take a shot at, uh, at who has the most Instagram followers worldwide? Anybody? It's Cristiano Ronaldo. He has the most, 535 million followers. Think about that. That's about 535 million more followers than I have. Yeah. Of course, Doug the Pug has more Instagram followers than I do, and I'm not even making that up. I mean, he's got more Instagram followers than you do too, all right? A very popular follow there in case you're looking for one. I'm not because I rarely post anything to it. But uh, it's interesting. 535 million followers is a lot of followers. But you know what? There's somebody who has more followers, but it's on a different app. Or it's, not, it's, on a, it's a different sort of, of follow. It is, it is actually called the app of life. And the one who has the most followers there is a guy by, goes by the name of Jesus. He's got billions of followers. Today we are going to be starting a new sermon series that, where we are going to be talking about what it looks like to follow this Jesus. We're just simply calling it follow. It's going to be a study, obviously, through the Gospel of Mark. And I am very excited about where this is going to take us. This book tells us about what it looks like to follow after Jesus. And that's what Jesus wants us to do. In fact, we see it throughout this gospel. Right as we get started, let's take a look at what some of these verses are we're going to be encountering right here in Mark 1. It's, Jesus says, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. A little bit later, the next chapter, he says, and as he passed by, he saw Levi, and he said to him, follow me. A few chapters after that, here's what we read. If anyone would come after me, Jesus says, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Again and again in this book, we are going to be seeing this idea of what it looks like and what it means to follow after Jesus. And we're going to get to each of those verses we were just looking at in due time as we get to them in their own context. But today, what we're going to do is we're going to get this whole thing kicked off by going ahead and taking a look at the first verses of Mark. And so if you haven't already, go ahead and open up in your journals or in your Bible in the outline to Mark chapter 1, and we're going to be in the first eight verses today as we get this kicked off. And I'm calling this sermon, Getting Right to the Point getting right to the point. And the reason I'm calling that it that is because that's exactly what the author does. Doesn't waste any time, but just getting right down to business. And we'll see that as we, as we talk about this a little bit more. And this is one of the arguments that is out there as for why the person who wrote this must be a guy. Because he, right, he gets right to the point. He, he doesn't have a, a, a whole lot to say, in other words, or at least doesn't use a lot of words to doing so. You can look at all the commentaries. They'll all say that. No, they, none of them will say that. But uh, that is something that we just simply know pretty much is true, right? I know a guy who got home from work one day, and his wife asked him how his day was, how his day went. She said, I want to know everything. That's exactly right. 
He responded, he said, oh, it was fine, good, fine. She said, there must have been something. And he thought for a minute and, and he said, oh, my brother did call, he said they had their baby. <laughs> she said, you didn't, you didn't think of that? She said, so what did they have? He said, I don't know. <laughs> I didn't ask. And my brother didn't tell me. All right? Not a whole lot of detail there, right? And when we come to the book of Mark, he certainly gives us a lot of detail, but it is pretty short and it's to the point when it comes to comparison with some of the other gospels specifically, and we'll, we'll see more of that as we make our way along as well. But today we're going to be getting right to the point. We're going to do that as we take a look at what he has to say, but also as we come to get kicked off in this study so that we get started well, so that we have a good foundation from which to build. So that's what we're going to do. I think it'll be useful if we start by actually setting the stage with some of the vitals of this book. It actually begins with these words. If you look at verse 1, chapter 1 of the book of Mark in your, in your journal there or in your Bible, whatever you're looking at, it says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It doesn't take long at all for us to see that this book is going to be all about Jesus. And I can promise you that each and every week as we make our way along, there will be no mistaking what this book is about, that this is about Jesus. But before we get into some of the essence of what this book actually has to say, I think it's appropriate for us to just set the stage. And one of the ways to set the stage is we need to know who's writing this particular book. Who is writing this? So let's talk for a moment about the author. Actually, it's a little bit unusual in the New Testament, but the book of Mark doesn't actually identify in the book itself who the author is. Many of the other books in the New Testament, they start by saying that this is me, I'm Paul, I'm writing this, or, or that sort of introduction. It doesn't actually say that in the book of Mark, though there is really little question about who the author is. Church history has never questioned it. The church fathers never questioned. In fact, modern scholarship really doesn't have a whole lot to say in arguing against the fact that we have a particular author here in mind, and his name is Mark. His name is Mark. This is a book that bears his name. That's why we call it Mark, because he is the author. We're first introduced to him, not in his book itself, but rather in the book of Acts. And where we're introduced to him is when Peter, you may remember the occasion when Peter had a miraculous escape from prison, and he goes somewhere, and the place he goes, Acts 12, tells us this. It says, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark. That's where he went. He went to this house. We see this is his full name then, is John Mark. John is his Jewish name, as you can see here, and Mark is actually his Roman name. His mother is Mary, it says. She is a very wealthy woman. She was a prominent woman in the church there in Jerusalem. In fact, a lot of people believe that at least one of the churches there in Jerusalem met in her house. Quite possible. In Acts 13, the next chapter, we're told that the same Mark is there, and what we find in Mark's case in this circumstance is that 
This is the occasion of Paul's first missionary journey and, and Paul and Barnabas are there and Mark and they all go out together on this first missionary journey. For some reason, Mark doesn't stay on the journey all the way into the end and it looks like Paul is kind of ticked about that because when it comes to the second missionary journey, Barnabas says to Paul, he's like, well, let me get Mark and we'll be on our way and Paul's like, no, we're not taking Mark. And so Barnabas and Paul actually get in a bit of a tiff about that, a bit of an argument, and Barnabas ends up separating from Paul, and Barnabas takes Mark, and and they go off on their own ministry. But whatever it was that stood there in between them, it wasn't something that was permanent, because we find later on that Paul actually writes to Timothy these words, if we can go back one, one bit there, there we go. It says, get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. So whatever it was, it wasn't something permanent or such a big deal that it couldn't be overcome. Now it's quite possible that we find Mark spoken of again in a more veiled way toward the end of his book. In, in chapter 14, there are 16 chapters in Mark, but in, in chapter 14, near the end of the chapter, uh, we see that the setting is the Garden of Gethsemane, and here's what we read there. It says, and a young man followed him, followed Jesus, with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. Mark very well might be describing himself right there. Mark, you see, was not one of the original 12 disciples, but he was tremendously interested in who Jesus was. And remember that um, his mother is this prominent woman in the Jerusalem church. It's believed pretty widely that the Last Supper was actually held there in her house as well. And so Mark was probably there on the outskirts of what was going on, wasn't one of the apostles himself. But as they go out toward the Garden of Gethsemane, it's quite possible that he just followed them because of his tremendous interest. Where else are you gonna go at that time? And it's quite likely then that he is there and he's the one who is seized and then runs away in nothing but his birthday suit, it says there in the text. So we do know that Mark had a close association with the disciples. In 1 Peter chapter 5, Peter refers to Mark as being his son. Now, not literally his son, but his spiritual son. It's quite likely that Peter was involved in seeing Mark come to faith in Jesus and Peter would have helped him grow. In fact, much of what we have in the Gospel of Mark is actually information that Mark got straight from Peter. And if you're going to get information from someone, why not have it be Peter, this guy who is a very, very close, or in very, very close association with Jesus himself. So the things that Mark knows, the thing that he writes, comes on very good authority, and he's able to speak with powerful authority as well. All right, so what is it that he's going to say? Back to verse 1. Again, it says, Mark says, in the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And what does it mean then? We need to ask, well, what is then a gospel? I'm sure that you've heard that word thrown around all the time and in a variety of, a variety of different ways and different sorts of settings. And so what exactly does gospel mean? Well, you've probably heard before that it means something like glad tidings or good news is probably the way that you have heard it most often. And it was that. In fact, it was first used, originally used, this word, it wasn't a spiritual term. It was just a term that was used of declaring some good news. So if there was a victory in battle, a messenger would come running into town yelling, gospel, Gospel, euangelion is the, is the Greek word. Gospel, good news to tell you about what has 
transpired. And here in this case, what is being told is that it's using this in reference to the fact that there is a good news about Jesus in this context and his life and his death and his resurrection. And this is a message that Mark's readers needed to hear because Mark is in Rome. He's writing to people who are living in Rome and things are very, very difficult and challenging. The emperor Nero has come on the scene. You may have read some of what he was all about. He has this campaign of terror to carry out against the Christians, tremendous persecution he was bringing against the Christians. And it was a very, very difficult time. And these readers needed to be reminded of who Jesus was and of the fact that Jesus was one who deserved their allegiance, that Jesus was one who had experienced and had, had already carried out victory against all of these forms of evil that were coming against him and even against them. Even, even death itself had been defeated by Jesus. And it's hard to give a precise timetable exactly when the Gospel of Mark was written. We always want to know, well, when was that written? We don't know exactly and precisely. We can say it was probably somewhere right in the range of 55 to 65 A.D., 55 to 65, it almost certainly is before 70 AD. That's when Jerusalem was destroyed and there's, there's not even a hint of a mention of that in the Gospel of Mark, so it almost certainly predates that. But even if it was 55 or 60 AD, that's, that's 20 plus years after Jesus was crucified. And you might ask, well, well, why wasn't it written down earlier? Why didn't he write this earlier? It's almost certainly the earliest of the gospels that are written. And why not sooner? And part of the answer is there was no need to because all of the disciples who were there, they were still around and and they certainly understood and they talked about these things all the time. And so there's this great oral tradition, so there's no big need for it to be written down. But as they start to age, as Nero comes on the scene and the, you can see the possibility of, of them being killed or that sort of thing, it's like, well, we better get this thing written down so that it uh, doesn't get lost, so that it doesn't get distorted. It's an important thing to do. I know that with both sets of my grandparents, we were we were very intentional about asking them to write down a bit of a history of their lives so that we would have that for generations to come because we don't know everything about them. Our parents didn't know everything about them and very important to write that stuff down. Now, it didn't meet with the great receptivity on the part of our grandparents, so we sat one of the sets down and, and we turned on the video recorder and we just grilled them with questions and they loved that, not. But uh, we got that record, and, and we've looked back at that at different times. With the other set, it kind of prompted uh, a story from, from them, and uh, that was that they had a, a relative who was a bit of a mysterious sort. He kind of did his own thing. He never really lived in one place. In fact, he never even lived in a home for a period of time. And, and so he all of a sudden showed up on one occasion to my grandparents and he showed up quickly, unannounced, and he left them a suitcase and they said, would, here, would you keep this suitcase for us? And then he was gone about as quickly as he came. And it's like, oh, well, that's interesting is they're relating this story to me. And now when they're relating it to me, it's like 30 years later or something. And I said, well, what was in it? They said, we don't know. I said, what do you mean you don't know? They said, well, it's still up in the storage in the garage. And so I talked them in to letting me open up this suitcase to see what's inside of it. Because I'm sure it's got to have cash or, or gold 
or a murder weapon or a secrets to Area 51 or something was gonna be in there. And so I took it and I, they agreed and I pried it open and inside this suitcase were clothes <laughs> and some shoes. <laughs> it certainly wasn't something that needed to be written down and, and remembered, but what Mark is dealing with here, this very much is something that needs to be written down. It needs to be remembered. It needs to be put in a place where there would never be any question about what had actually happened, and especially as he's writing in this period of time when there's still eyewitnesses, and Peter himself is, is giving him all of the inside scoop of what was going on. There's no way that this would have become distorted, and it's important that it would be saved. Mark is one of the four Gospels in the New Testament. There are four of them. They are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that's exactly right. The first four books of the New Testament are all Gospels. Now, John is a bit different than the other three when it comes to some of its arrangements, some of its content, what it has to say, and so it's kind of kept as its own, but the other three are oftentimes referred to as the Synoptic Gospels. The Synoptic Gospels, it's kind of an important word. And it relates to the fact that these three, that just kind of means like the things that they have in common. And as you look at Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they in fact do have a number of things that are in common. Many of the same stories and parables and teachings are contained and miracles are contained in all three or at least two of the three of those different gospels. So it's called the synoptic Gospels. Now, there are a lot of things that are the same, but there are also things that are different about the Synoptic Gospels. For instance, in the case of Matthew, he wrote to a Jewish audience. And as you read through the Gospel of Matthew, it's kind of distinctive in what it says and where it quotes from. In the case of Luke, it was generally a more general Gentile audience that he wrote to. In the case of Mark, it's a much narrower audience that he has in mind. It's the Roman audience. Remember, he's living in Rome, he's writing in Rome, he's writing to the Romans, and uh, so it's, it's very different from the others. In fact, you can see that because as we read through Mark, what you'll see is there are times when he mentions something that is a Jewish word or it's, it's a Jewish custom, and right in the text, he'll go and he'll explain that what it is, because he's not writing to people who would have known that and understood. Also, Mark does not quote the Old Testament nearly as often as somebody like Matthew does. Matthew's writing to a Jewish audience, so quoting from the Jewish scriptures makes a lot of sense. Mark doesn't do a whole lot of that. Why? Because he's writing to a group of people who wouldn't have known it, who wouldn't have respected it, and so it's not that big of a deal to them. We have said that Mark gets right to the point, and you can see that right from the outset. As if you look in the book or the Gospel of Matthew, you can see that he starts with this long genealogical record of Jesus and where he came from and the line through which it came, and they would have known who all these people were. He takes 17 verses to give us this genealogy of who Jesus is. Matthew gives us all this information, as does Luke, about the birth of Jesus, talks about it talks about uh, all of the, uh, talks about Elizabeth and her role in the story. It talks about Bethlehem. It talks about all these details that we have studied as we came through the Christmas season. Mark doesn't put in any of that, none of it. Luke starts, 
He, he includes the birth story as well, but he just starts his gospel with an introductory sentence that takes up some 74 English words. Mark, for his part, gives us an introduction that has 12. Mark is a guy who just gets to the point. And as a result, Mark's gospel is the shortest of all of the gospels. And uh, we can see that here. It's in terms of the gospel length. In the case of Matthew, it's 28 chapters, and there's over 23,000. I'm going to speak slowly in case you want to get this down. Matthew has 28 chapters and over 23,000 words. In the case of Luke, it's only got 24 chapters, but more words, more than 25,000 words. In the case of Luke, in the case of Mark, there's only 16 chapters and not even 15,000 words. Now, does that mean he gyps us and, you know, we don't get certain? No, he is very full in what he has to say. He makes a very good case for what it looks like to follow after Jesus, but it's much shorter. In fact, it's something the length of which you could easily sit down and read in one sitting. In fact, that's what I want to challenge you to do. Before we get together next time, I urge you to get into the book of Mark and sit down and just read it through. Read all the way through that journal. You can do it. Set, it'll set the stage for you. It'll give, an, give you an idea of where it is that we are going. And then as we make our way along, I'd encourage you to be reading a chapter ahead of where we actually are in the series and be prayerfully asking God to reveal things to you or maybe it'll prompt questions in your mind that, that you want to dig into or hopefully get answered as we speak to that together or something to dig more deeply into if we don't answer it here in this particular context. This is a great opportunity, friends, for us to grow forward, for us to grow forward. And the truth is that the biggest factor in what you get out of this is going to be what you put into this. The biggest factor is not how well I preach it. I'm going to do my best, but the biggest factor is not how well I preach it. It's how much you engage in it. That's what's going to make the difference. So I want to challenge you to that end, even as we just get started, that you're going to dig deep and you're going to get serious and you're going to be in the text. And I believe that you will learn much as we do so. So understanding the background and having read Mark's introduction to the book, which is basically just verse one. Let's go ahead and take a look at his introduction to Jesus. And to do that, Mark calls on two different people to prepare the way for Jesus coming. So let's go ahead and look at hearing from the witnesses. Two witnesses here. And the first of the witnesses is somewhat ironic because of what I've already said about the fact that Mark doesn't quote from the Old Testament very much. Because now as I've just said that, the very first thing he does is quote from the Old Testament. And you can see that right away there in, in verse 2. Right at the outset, he quotes from Isaiah. And interestingly enough, Mark doesn't quote from Isaiah to tell us about Jesus, though Isaiah often does tell us about Jesus if you read through his book in the Old Testament. He quotes here from Isaiah to tell us about the witness who will tell us about Jesus. All right, that's where he's getting started. So what is it that Mark quotes Isaiah saying about him? Verse two, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. 
The original context for these verses is an allusion back to the Old Testament because he's quoting from Isaiah where there there was a prophet, prophets who cried out to those who were around to get them to turn from their sin and to move in a way that moves them back toward God in repentance. And just the way that it was used there in the Old Testament is the same way that Mark is wanting to use it here when he speaks of, or Isaiah is using it really, that Mark quotes to speak of this one who comes to make this declaration itself. Mark has that in mind. Mark is calling on the testimony of Isaiah that didn't only have that application in the Old Testament, but also he's making it now have an application in the New Testament. And what And that's what Mark has here to say. Isaiah is pointing forward to one who is going to prepare the way for Jesus. And in those days, you would prepare the way for someone of stature or prominence by making the road plain or straight. You would clear off debris that would be on the road. You would fix it and you would smooth it out. In our context today, it would be like filling potholes. Right? And based on what potholes are like in western Pennsylvania, it would seem as though there's been nobody of stature or prominence around here for a really long time. Right? Because you know what the pothole situation is. Well, they would also make sure that the lodging was set up. They'd be sure that they had just the right food prepared in order to welcome that person. And for Mark, he quotes Isaiah to speak of this one who is coming to prepare the way for Jesus. His ministry wasn't to be clearing the roads. His ministry was to prepare the people spiritually speaking so that they would be prepared for the time when Jesus comes on the scene. And he is doing this work and he is carrying it out and had for a long, long time. And Mark goes on to explain that he did that. And that's where we meet the second of the witnesses. Isaiah is the first. The second of them is John the Baptist. John the Baptist. Mark tells us about him beginning in verse 4. Look at it. It says, John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. As we've seen, John came on the scene to prepare the way for Jesus, but he didn't just go out to some street corner and start talking to people. John had a ministry all of his own that he was carrying out long before Jesus ever shows up on the scene. If you remember the Christmas story, if you remember the Christmas story, you will recall that there were actually two miraculous pregnancies there in the story. One of them, of course, was Mary, that she gives this birth as a virgin to Jesus. That is the first of those. But if you remember the story, you know that Mary also has a relative And that as soon as she basically learns that she is pregnant with Jesus, she goes to this relative, and this relative's name is Elizabeth. And Elizabeth is also with child. And it's also going to be a miraculous birth because of her age. She was well past childbearing age, but yet she is told that she is going to have a baby. It would have been, it would have been kind of like you starting to get birth announcements from people in our prime timers ministry, our seniors ministry, right? That would be very unusual. And then 80 plus people or 80, 80 plus somethings, you know, eight octogenarians, I guess is what I'm trying to say, that they would start showing up in mops, 
right? In the Mothers of Preschoolers ministry. I mean, it would be that unusual and that strange. Well, so this is a miraculous birth also that Elizabeth has, and in her case, the one that she is carrying is this very same John the Baptist. John the Baptist. It's all there in the Christmas story if you want to go back and read about it. Now, he's come on the scene with this ministry that God gave him to do. He comes with this true prophetic voice. He is calling people to repentance. He's telling them, you can't just walk around and live however you want. God is one who needs to be honored. He's one that needs to be served. In fact, there's another one coming that you need to be prepared for, and I'm working to prepare your hearts. And John was welcomed when he did this. Now, keep in mind that he's the first prophetic voice that has come into the nation of Israel in over 400 years. And so they were ready for a voice. Even though he was calling them to repentance, they were ready to see God visibly active again in a way that they hadn't in their lifetimes, the people who were predating John the Baptist here in this context. Some of them even thought that he was the Messiah himself. And they, and, and they called out, are you that one? And he was like very quickly quick to dismiss that. It might have been tempting. I don't know if you would have been tempted to let people think that, but he doesn't. He says, no, 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 that's not me. There's one who's far mightier than I, and he's coming right behind me. I'm just preparing the way for him. But nonetheless, people came out into the wilderness in droves to be baptized by Jesus. Some have suggested that he baptized as many as 300,000 people. Just let that sink in for a minute. 300,000 people. And what we're told is that his was a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And some have confused that to be saying that it was a baptism that actually when they went through those waters of baptism that it forgave their sins and that it brought them salvation. But that's not what this is saying. That's not what John was doing. What John would do is somebody would come out into the wilderness and say, I want to be baptized. He'd say, have you repented of your sins? And if they said yes, he would baptize them as a sign that this had taken place in their lives. If they said no, he refused to baptize them. Some of the Pharisees and Sadducees came out. They said, okay, you big, you big baptizer, you. Baptize us. And he said, no, I won't baptize you. Why? Because there had been no inner repentance. There had been no inner change that had taken place. Verse six. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. Now it's interesting that Mark, who is a guy who cuts to the chase, doesn't tell us anything about John's birth. He doesn't tell us anything about Gabriel, who announced his birth, doesn't say anything about his daddy, Zechariah, who couldn't speak until he was born, doesn't tell us any of that information, but he tells us what he was wearing, his outfit, and what his diet consisted of. It seems a little backward somehow that he would say that and not the other, but he says what he says because Mark is trying to make a point here. And people got it. For one thing, John's clothes make it clear that he was not just mainstream in the culture. In order to participate in John's ministry, you had to put your pride aside. You had to stop going after personal glory. And you had to humble yourself and submit yourself to the purposes of God, to repent of your sin, to turn from your ways, to turn to the ways of God. That's what he was calling them to. And there was no mistaking that this is what his ministry was about. 
There should be no mistaking in our lives either that the same thing is required of us. If we're truly going to be a follower after Jesus Christ, we have to go that same direction. We have to repent of our sins. We need to turn from our pride. See, many of us are like, yeah, I'd, be, I'd love to follow after Jesus as long as it doesn't mean I have to change anything. As long as I can just keep living the same way I want to, but that's not what we're called to. Following Jesus is an all-in proposition, holding nothing back, regardless of the cost. And so as we go into this, we need to understand that that's what we're being called to as well, that we'd be willing to follow in the same way. Also, John's clothing choices and diet would have reminded everybody else of a well-known and very well-respected prophet from Israel's history, a guy by the name of Elijah. Elijah. Because we're told in the scriptures that he dressed much the same way and they would have had this picture in their mind, no doubt. In fact, some of them thought he probably was Elijah. It might even been some of why the following grew so quickly to come around John the Baptist. So John prepares the way. And the interesting thing is, the, the interesting thing is that the need for that same sort of preparation is no different today. We don't need a baptism to precede what believer's baptism is for us, but we do need the constant preparation of repentance and forgiveness if we want to walk closely with Christ. And if we don't pursue it, we're really no better than those Pharisees who are pretending one thing was true of them when it wasn't true of them at all. That is a true love for God and a submitting of their lives to Him. And then finally, John speaks of Jesus, the one for whom he is preparing the way. Verse seven, and he preached saying, after me comes he who is mightier than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. John makes it very clear that Jesus is the powerful one and that all that he had done, that John had done, just paled in comparison to what Jesus is coming to do. And that John pales in comparison to who Jesus is. He says, I'm not even worthy to stoop down and untie his shoes. One of them, John, baptized with water. Jesus came to baptize with the Holy Spirit. With the Holy Spirit. The Old Testament promised a time when God would demonstrate his power and give a special blessing on the people. And that pointed forward to this moment that John is now also talking about, something we refer to as Pentecost. We read about it in Acts chapter 2 when it talks about the descending of the Holy Spirit on all of those who put their faith and trust in Jesus. And if you are one who has put your faith and trust in Jesus, the same thing is true of you, that you have the Holy Spirit of God indwelling you right now to give you the power to overcome that temptation of sin that is always with you, gives you the power to defeat that sin. It gives you the power to pursue and live after the purposes for which God has created you. Mark here, in short order, has gotten right to the point. His gospel is about Jesus. His gospel is about how we might come to know more of him and 
follow and follow. And so that's what we're going to be talking about. We're going to be talking about what it looks like for us to be a follower. And here's the thing. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you've come from. It doesn't matter how long you've been a believer in Jesus or whether you're not a believer in Jesus yet today. The opportunity is here for all of us to learn and to grow. In fact, honestly, I'm excited about what I'm going to learn and how I'm going to grow as we make our way along and before we get to the end of this. And as you ponder that, as you think about that for yourself, you're the only one here who knows right where you are, spiritually speaking. You're the only one who knows what your desire might be for where you would grow or what your desire is in in your mind and heart. So as we get into this, I would just challenge you, maybe somewhere in your, there in your journal, find a page, maybe right at the top of the front, maybe on the back, wherever, and write down what your goal would be for yourself, what you're hoping for, for yourself by the time that we get to the end of this series. Then look back at that every week. Ask yourself if you're making progress toward that goal. Let us know how we might be able to assist you in getting there. Mark, for his point, for his part, gets right to the point. And I pray that we would also to follow. There is a tremendous opportunity spread in front of all of us right now. Don't waste the moment. Let us learn. Let us follow. Next week we are going to be continuing on in chapter one. I'd encourage you to read the rest of the chapter in preparation. I'd have, I've already encouraged you to read the whole book so that you'd be prepared. But specifically, before you come next week, just read the rest of chapter one, and we're gonna dig into a bit of that next week. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this word from Mark. We thank you for this gospel, the good news of Jesus. We thank you for who you've made us to be. We thank you for the opportunity that is ours in these moments, in this day, in this series that is ahead for us to learn and to grow, for us to follow more fully after you. Lord, we thank you for that opportunity. We thank you for the anticipation of what is to come. Lord, I thank you for your goodness and I thank you for your son, Jesus, who we come to learn of, who gives us the opportunity to be transformed from who we were into who you've made us to be. So Lord, continue to soften our hearts, we pray. In the name of Jesus, amen.